So across England, we're telling councils for a few hundred thousand here or a million there or whatever, to go and deliver these massive, ambitious, bold programs, reallocate road space, roll out cycle tracks and LTNs like a speed we've never seen before. Um, but the resources we give to the road building and building gigantic junctions on, you know, motorways and things like that dwarfs anything that these councils have been given. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week has been hugely more influential than he ever thought he would be. He started out 12 years ago trying to improve cycling infrastructure where he lives in Walthamstow in North East London, and everything just kind of snowballed. Walthamstow became the exemplar project first for London and then for the United Kingdom. The government has ambitious plans to improve cycling infrastructure nationwide and many of the ideas started out in the brain of Simon Monk. Simon, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, you're now a full-time cycling campaigner for the, for the London Cycle Campaign, but as far as I can tell, you seem to have spent most of your career in video games. Is that right? And <laughs> how exactly did that happen? Yeah, not quite just video games, but I was essentially an overgrown boy, man-child for, for my adult career. Uh, so I, um, yeah, it's a, it's a wayward and long story. Um, uh, the short version of which was that for the last 30-odd years, I've lived in Walthamstow. Um, and I was a consumer technology journalist, video games, outdoors gear, uh, you know, mobile phones, all sorts of stuff. Um, but I was also a, a local community campaigner. I've been a local community campaigner in one stripe or another, fought to save the local cinema, you know, done roads protests, uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Um, so I've always kind of been on marches. I've always done, you know, community organising, stuff like that. And, and around about 2006, I think, uh, I started getting involved in the Waltham Forest cycling campaign. And over a couple of years, I just got more and more kind of grumpy uh, with the fact that there was absolutely nothing going on in, in Walthamstow. The cycling, if you, if you cycled in the area, you were basically putting up with kind of really hairy close passes and horrible roads and all sorts of things on a daily, hourly basis. Um, at about 2008, I got to a point where I was really, really fed up. So I, I, what I did was I spent a year, this is possibly, when I say these things, it kind of starts starts ticking in my head how crazy this idea was. But I spent a year persuading local councillors for Bike Week 2008, I think it was, uh, to go out on a one-on-one -on -one ride with me. I'd, I'd read in the London Cycling Campaign magazine, I'd read uh, an article about, how I think Greenwich were doing this thing called the Acre Movers and Shakers um, that, that was getting people, local people who were important people out on bikes. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. But I, I kind of did, a, did it with a twist, which is I, I got local councillors and cabinet officers and things like that, um, out, council officers, out on one-on-one -on -one ride. And I made this decision very early on that I wanted to do it one-on-one -on -one because what I wanted to do, I've, I've seen and you know council rides where the, the council officers had gone out, like 20 of them all together. And what happens is all the traffic just completely adapts to, oh my God, there's a massive wall of people on bikes doing weird things and wobbling everywhere right you know slow down give them loads of room etc um, and I didn't want that so what I spent was a year persuading the councillors and the council officers to go out one-on-one -on -one because I didn't want the traffic to adapt around them I wanted them to experience what the roads were genuinely like 
Um, and to the credit, you know, of the council, it took a long time, but we got the council leader at the time was in his mid 60s out on a bike, you know, riding down the Lee Bridge Road, the most dangerous road in, in the borough at that point, um, on a bike and, you know, various other people. And, and so I spent a week just you know, during bike week 2008, just terrified, thinking any minute now, some council is going to go under the wheels of a lorry. Um, and, uh, you know, but then also thinking in a terrible, evil part of my brain going, you know, but then think of the headlines, think of like the change that would come from that. <laughs> Bad thoughts. Um, so, so after that, things changed. You know, that was quite the incredible moment when, you know, in 2009, after that kind of event, we, we did a wrap up report. And, I, and the way that we had a dialogue with the council really changed. So we started seeing as volunteers. The council previously, like, we gave you an ASL, you know, one of those boxes with the bike logo at the front of the traffic light. Gave you one of those. What more could you possibly want? And that suddenly changed to, okay, we get it. This is this is not okay. This isn't, you know, no no mums, no women, no people will cycle generally, apart from the few fast and fit and fearless, will cycle in this area ever unless we change things. But we've got no money. Um, so this went on for a couple of years. That there was kind of will, there was the, the will to do stuff differently, but there was just just no budget at all, and no, you know, nothing was really still happening. And then the Olympic Games happened, and Walford Forest was one of the Olympic boroughs. Um, and I think in the run up to that, the, the council suddenly started saying, "Well, we need we need a plan." So in in 2011, they came up with the 2012 Cycle Action Plan, and they literally sat down with me. And by this point, there was me and another guy called Paul Gasson. Uh, who's now quite a famous cycle campaigner as well. Uh, I think already was before, but we, we sat down with the council and they said, well, what do you want? And we kind of listed these 10 things and that became the, the cycle action plan pretty much. And then from there, when Boris Johnson, the mayor, announced the mini Holland bidding in 2012, uh, we then, as a council, bid for it, made the bid, and then all hell broke loose. So we had just a huge amount of opposition schemes. The whole of Walthamstow, the whole of Walthamstow Forest went up in arms about various things. People loved the ideas, you know, because this is, this is, Walthamstow Forest got one, was one of three London boroughs that won circa 20, you know, 30 million pounds uh, to spend on, well, at the time was mostly builders cycling, but cycling and walking, transformations of town centres. Um, and so Walthamstow Forest, Kingston and Enfield were the three boroughs that won and Walthamstow Forest immediately kind of came out the gates and started moving very quickly. Um, and that its bid was the boldest. So all of this work started paying off. But then on top of that, we had this massive backlash of, of people who suddenly were like, wait a minute, you're going to do what? You're going to do what to my road? You're going to do ha hang on? And started getting very angry. We had protests. We had coffins marched up the middles of streets. We had uh, the Dutch <laughs> the Dutch ambassador uh, barracked by people shouting at him. Uh, all sorts of people you know, came to open a scheme and got, got completely heckled. Uh, so we had a whole bunch of stuff that happened. Um, and through that, then myself and Paul, and then by that point, uh, another guy called Dan Kelly and various other people started appearing and kind of becoming champions of these schemes. Um, and then a whole huge kind of group of people started forming that really supported these schemes, as well as groups opposing the schemes. Um, and we went through a year of that. And then the job at LCC came up uh, to become infrastructure campaigner at LCC. And I just thought I've spent a year... You know, my, my career as a journalist was lovely. I had great fun, but it, that's all it was. It was fun. Um, and this stuff, you know, and maybe there was something about I had kids, young kids at this point, and I was just fed up with trying to cross the zebra crossing without being killed or them being, being killed or, you know, whatever. Um, so I suddenly thought, you know what, I can, I can keep being a journalist and, and playing video games, you know, which is fun. 
which is great fun, but it, it, it isn't really fundamentally meaning, meaningful or fulfilling for me, or I can take a massive leap and change career and, and take what I've learned over the last year and then five years prior to that um, and, and make something of it. And, and that's what I did, I guess, really. Uh, and then six years, I think we're coming up to six years at, at LCC, um, and very much the lessons that were learned from the Wolf and Forest Mini Holland kind of in terms of how this all works have then played out across London. And we've seen, you know, many of the ideas that came out of the Wolf and Forest Mini Holland particularly um, become, you know, firstly regional policy and regionally rolled out across London and then national policy across England, you know. So, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride. I mean, yeah, I, I also live in Walthamstow and Walthamstow is now the poster child for this kind of thing. If anyone's going to illustrate a picture of a cycling scheme, they always choose a picture of Walthamstow. And you know, when when I moved to Walthamstow, which is roughly when you started taking your councillors out for bike rides, I didn't ride a bike and I wouldn't didn't ride a bike because I didn't want to die. Um, and I now do ride a bike and I am absolutely the exact kind of person that has taken up cycling again for the first time in God knows how long. I think I was 15 when I previously rode a bike um, because of the work that you've done. So, by the way, thank you. Um, <laughs> but you can't possibly have imagined back in 2008 when you started invi- inviting councillors out for bike rides where this would end, could you? I mean, it, Gosh, you couldn't no. Have <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been a strange and wild ride, as I said. You know, really uh, all we wanted. So, you know, and you could see, I'm sure if someone, you know, at some point, there is, in fact, there are several points in my life that, that someone probably has written a book about or will write a book about, or I should at some point write a book about. Um, and this is one of them, you know. And, and so when we started, you can see in the document, so the, the cycle, the 2012 cycle action plan that I mentioned earlier, that's that's already, you know, that's online. Um, you can find it. And and the scale of kind of ambition there, it, you know, is, is so much lower than what ended up then happening later on. Um, so we just said, you know, can we fix some junctions? Can we have 20 miles an hour in the borough? Can we have lorries that are fours, gold standard or silver standard or something like that? You know, it was kind of a few things that were like, they were the kind of grab bag of things that people at the time were talking about. These are good things to do uh, if you want some more people cycling. They weren't transform radically the, you know, pretty much the southern two thirds of the entire borough into being you know, something that does look like a Dutch <laughs> a Dutch city, um, which is effectively what ended up happening. So, and, and you know, there is there is a cast of thousands thing to this as well, which is, you know, while Paul and I, and then later Dan and Paul and I, were working on the political will extant at the council and, and trying to get the councillors to, to do stuff. What we didn't know is, is after the announcement of the mini Holland bidding process, is that the council appointed a, a consultant uh, who was who was basically kept in a box for you know pretty much a year to produce the bid, the mini Hollywood. So we kept going in and saying, well, we think you know, so classically, for instance, at one point we had a meeting with one of the senior council officers who said we can, we cannot do cycle tracks. There's no way we can do cycle tracks. And we said, look, okay, we really want cycle tracks. We really think they're needed. But if you will not do them, why not look at what Hackney has done and do some Vona, do some like low traffic neighbourhoods as they are now called. But like you know, at the time we were like pointing at Hackney and going, do that thing that they've done over there for a while. Um, if you won't do cycle tracks, please do something, you know, for your bid. Otherwise, you won't win the bid. So please come up with something. And little did we know that behind the scenes, there was another guy, a guy called John Little, uh, who's a transport consultant. 
who uh, was also who was working on the bid and who was also pushing from the other side. So it was this unknown pincer movement that resulted in the Mini Holland bid being much bolder than than anyone I think anticipated. Um, and you know we had the political champion in the form of Clyde Lokes, Councillor Clyde Lokes, who really went to you know went to bat for this for this bid and then for the delivery of it. Um, and that that rolling ball just started gathering. You know once we had the bid and we we had the kind of the, the fact that there was all these people, you know, John, you know, so there were now lots of people in lots of bits of, of the kind of the area all working different ways um, to start moving this bit. And then so once that happened, it started rolling like, you know, a huge ball of momentum. Um, and there are, you know, I, Paul and I regularly sit down down at the pub. We haven't, we haven't done it for a while, but, but, you know, and talk about the moments where it nearly derailed, where it nearly all went wrong, you know, and there are many of them. Um, but what happened was it didn't go wrong. It went, you know, you know, at several points with councillors who were very worried about the schemes. You know, we had officers who suddenly started kind of getting wobbles. We had various points at which this could have all stopped, and it didn't. And instead, it stopped rolling as a ball. And again, you know, how that, you know, so I went to LCC and then I went to to started talking to people in City Hall and TFL and saying, you know, this thing works over here. It's it's you've got to come out and try it. It's quite good. Um, and, you know, even then in the early days, you know, it was a very patchy network and a very patchy kind of few schemes here. But you're starting to see, you know, the moment a scheme went in, suddenly there were loads of mums on cargo bikes. You were like, where are they? Where are they? Come? Where are, who are they? You know, and I remember I was chatting to Claire from Enfield, who, who's gone through a similar journey in Enfield um, as another one of the mini Holland boroughs. And I said to her, you know, there'll come a day where you're pulled up at the lights on your bicycle and you won't be the only person there. And then there'll come a day when you pull up the lights and there'll be a whole bunch of people who you don't even know anymore. You know, there'll be people who you don't recognize. And then you'll come the day when you, there'll be three cargo bike mums, you know, or parents in the, in the, at the lights. And you'll be like, where did the cargo bikes come from? Um, and that's when you start thinking this is, this is working. You know? And she, she's well past that point now. And, you know, so so we've gone through this kind of journey, all, all a whole bunch of boroughs and a whole bunch of, of people in Walton Forest particularly. Um, and then, yeah, it started spreading. So Paul and Dan, when I went to join LCC, Paul and Dan stayed being volunteers, for, you know, for a long time afterwards. Dan's now at Sustrans. Um, but, you know, they were, they were for years, they were doing tours of the borough. You know, as the scheme started evolving and going in, they would give tours. And they've done literally hundreds of tours for you know people from all over the country and i think that's when you know that poster child thing tfl you know and it helps some of the schemes look lovely like there's, there's some real public realm work gone into the schemes, so they look really nice and i think to some extent that was intentional you know that, that some of the early schemes they really went to town on the look because what they wanted is to then act as poster childs initially not not they i don't think anyone was thinking well other boroughs in london might adopt this but but just getting residents in other bits of the area to go, can we have that thing that we like that thing? It looks really nice, um, was quite important. So I think some of the schemes, you know, they went and, and so, but then TFL picked up on, you know, so they were like, oh, Orford Road looks really nice. So every presentation for like two years that I went to at TFL would have a picture of Orford Road. You know, I even, I'm quite famous for on consultation, you know, on, sorry, webinars and things like that. I'll type in the chat. WF Mini Holland klaxon every time a picture comes up of Walton Forest. And people, like, for a while, it was just non-stop. I'm just typing this non-stop because every picture was Walton Forest. So that, that scheme's looking good and starting to work had a massive, profound impact on, on, I think, the whole of the country. 
in terms of the fact that Paul and Dan were then doing tools, the pictures were starting to appear everywhere, and people started to get, oh, hang on a minute, there's this thing happening. Um, and I guess, you know, yeah, and then I went, I was then treading the corridors of power for LCC, and a lot of what I do is talk to TFL and City Hall people, because we have borough groups in every borough, they're generally looking after the boroughs and what happens to the borough. It's my job to talk upwards to, to the kind of the people in power. And a lot of the time I was saying, well, look, come out, have a look at this stuff you know, you should be assessing it. You should be assessing the evidence because this works. And if it works here in a, you know, fairly, what was a fairly scrappy outer London borough, surely it can work in some other bits of London, you know. Um, and then, you know, I think Gilligan, uh, so Boris Johnson, you know, obviously left when, you know, when Steve was elected, Boris Johnson stood down uh, and and was didn't, you know, moved on from mayor of London. Um, he had other ambitions. And and so he then kind of went off the scene for a little bit, as did his transport advisor, his, his uh, you know, key transport aide, who was cycling commissioner in London, Andrew Gilligan. Um, and then Boris pops up at number 10. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, Andrew Gilligan, you know, joins the, the cadre of advisors, the, the, the inner circle, as it were. Um, so Gilligan is now, you know, Boris's key advisor at number 10. Andrew, you know, he was responsible for getting the Cycle Super Highway program running and the Mini Holland program running. So he is rightly proud of his achievements in London and has clearly taken a blueprint from London and decided to roll it out beyond London um, and has been pushing that for some time. And you can see that in, you know, the, the DFT response during the, the crisis with the Emergency Active Travel Fund. And you can see it also with, um, you know, the, the DFT guidance, the LTN 120 document and gear change and things like that, that's got Andrew's, you know, fingerprints all over. So, so again, I think his experience in London and particularly with the Walton Forest schemes that he was, he was rightly proud of has rolled out, you know, and, it, and again, in the same way that there's all these other movers and shakers, Brian Deegan, who was a key transport advisor at TFL is now Manchester's, you know, greater Manchester's under Chris Boardman's key transport advisor. Um, his fingerprints are all over this stuff as well. You know, so these people have taken what they know works, what they have delivered, what they've been involved with in some extent or another, and it's just gradually spread. One, I mean, I remember that extraordinary period you referred to um, in 2016 of the opposition. And I remember the, the coffin march down, down Orford Road when it was predicted that Minnie Holland would be the death of the neighbourhood, um, very graphically illustrated. And you know, it was bizarre because the country was going through Brexit and you know pre families and neighbourhoods were being torn apart by their opposing views on Brexit. And yet around here, we had Brexit a bit, but actually far more than Brexit, we had Minnie Holland. And the, you know neighbourhoods and streets were being torn apart in people's opinions on whether or not Orford Road should be part pedestrianised or not. And it was extraordinary. What happened afterwards because the council did hold their nerve and did implement pretty much everything they'd said they were going to implement what happened to that opposition afterwards are they still there some of them are most of them are absolutely not you know that's the, the simple the simple truth uh, but also you know let's be clear about this the the, the the you know we know we know now we've seen this now over and over again in the last few years um and i i don't know i mean i, I it's a fascinating area i think you know um I, i've been recently watching the adam curtis documentary can't get you out of my head and the 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 move from a patrician top down you know you you serfs should be grateful for what we do for to you for you um kind of society to one where social media has and, and a whole bunch of other shifts have enabled everyone to have a voice 
and them to use their voice very loudly. It's a fascinating shift in society and the way that it impacts on transport planning and transport is and city planning and our cities is, is increasingly interesting. Um, but the central argument, I think, from all of this comes to me is that actually what we've done, and it, and it happened really before social media, but social media really didn't help, um, is we've handed a very tiny group of people an incredibly loud voice um, and a lot about. So traditionally, you know, and we've seen this in London during the crisis with the rollout of the street space schemes. Um, you know, we saw 2,000 person marches in Ealing against low traffic neighbours. You know, we saw... Um, you know, petitions all over the place. We saw all sorts of stuff. Um, and these things, you know, this was a load of people very angry and very opposed to these schemes. But what we don't still don't understand and we still don't see and we're still learning on is actually they they even these that massive march in Ealing, which was which was, you know, gigantic and must have been really like represents a really strong set of opinion. It's a tiny minority of people still, you know, 2000 people in the whole of Ealing who managed to turn out, many of whom didn't come from Ealing, uh, who turned out to feel strongly enough to turn out for this. Um, yet what we see is over and over again, and, and Walter Forest bears this out as the first, you know, the first go round of this. But what we see is we see the voting patterns, you know, if anything, if there is any pattern in the voting patterns, you know, and voting is so, such a complicated thing. But what we see is we see actually the vote share for people who are bold and support progressive transport measures and reducing car use and restricting car use goes up. <laughs> That's the, the broad pattern. You know, it's very difficult to unpick exactly how this all plays out. Um, but what we've just seen is, you know, we've just seen, for instance, a mayoral election straight after a delivery of a huge bunch of very controversial schemes all over London. Um, and we saw several mayoral candidates absolutely go after, for instance, low traffic neighbours, go after travel and active travel schemes and, you know, anti-car schemes, for want of a better word. Um, we saw several of the main candidates go straight at that approach. You know, Sean Bailey stood effectively on a ticket of, on one hand, you know, knife crime, and on the other hand, low traffic neighbours and, and cycling. You know, that was that was his kind of platform as as popularized in the media and put forward um and he wasn't the only one you know we had a whole bunch of candidates all of whom stood very directly against Sadiq and the and against green active measures um and they all got they all did you know not well and in fact all of the candidates in Walking Forest who stood on again on anti these schemes anti mini Holland kind of tickets have all lost incredibly badly um, so I think there is there is a real you know sense of that, and, and there is a sense you know even a year after the schemes went in, there was a survey of visitors to the area, um, and while businesses said you know were still very negative about the schemes, the visitors to the businesses were like we love it, <laughs> don't change it back. You know the residents were like no, we wouldn't put it back to the way it was. So you know it it is it's a noise it's a lot of noise that that really you have to kind of listen to the the issues that we raised. But for politicians, they should increasingly be going, you know what, well, this is just noise. And there is an interesting question here, because my sense of the area is exactly what you just said. You know, people like it overall. Um, there's not a great push to change things back to how they were at all. Um, there's much, much less opposition than there was when these these things were proposals as opposed to been implemented. And yet, you know, when I cycle to the supermarket, typically you know, I park one of two or three bikes in a car park full of cars. So most people are still driving for relatively short journeys to do their shopping, but actually they're not opposed to schemes that make that harder and cycling easier. And there's a kind of 
slight puzzle to me there. So in this intermediate stage, why, why that's the case? Have you got any thoughts as to why that might be? Yeah, I, th- I think simply because, you know, all of these schemes at, the, at their root at their end are not just, you know, and that was one of the big mistakes of the whole program in a way was initially it was billed as this is cycling. And what I think we've realized with all the forest is even if you do schemes that are just cycling just about cycling supposedly they don't end up being just about cycling you know so actually people respond to these schemes in different ways and they experience these schemes in different ways you know the low traffic neighborhood schemes are are almost universally not about cycling like cycling is such a tiny part of what they end up being and what they turn out to be you know in in implementation is community schemes you know it's the people who suddenly feel like they can amble across the road without without worrying about a car that their kids can play out you know for the first time in a generation um you know because they can you know they can just they can just amble out the street and they're not worried about that stuff uh you know it's the community planting groups that spring up wherever these things come up and suddenly you're seeing boxes around tree pits and you know the planters being looked after and stuff um so there's all that kind of stuff so if you you know if you live in a low traffic neighborhood if you live in an area that, that becomes a low traffic neighborhood for instance you might well have you know massive concerns clearly loads of people do have massive concerns. oh my, my drive is going to be much harder it's going to be this then it all beds in and a year later you're like you know what my drive is three minutes longer but now i've got i, I chat to my neighbors and I'm, i don't even think people consciously think that but but over time they experience their area as nice nicer and that's a massively powerful thing. And in the same vein, those people who own cars and still are driving to the supermarket are probably also much less likely to drive to the supermarket over time. We know that from the data from Rachel Aldred studies, for instance, um, you know, that, that over time, people are just gradually dropping some of those stupid car journeys that, that people do out of laziness or kind of habit or whatever. And instead, they're just walking to the local shop or whatever. And, and so those journeys, suddenly you're like, you know what? this is quite nice. I quite like it. I've bumped into a mate. I, you know, what? so all of that kind of stuff happening, that experiential stuff takes just a long time and people don't necessarily at any point have a conscious, there, there isn't a conscious flip decision where I think people go, you know what, that scheme that I hated, I now love, or that scheme that I wasn't really bothered about is now brilliant. What I think people do is they go, you know, I, I didn't think about it for a while and then I quite like things. You know, it's that it's that kind of it's that very unengaged middle. Um, so those car drivers, you know, I suspect some of them will have opposed the consultation and some of them will now be have a bike as well as a car. Some of them will now walk more as well as having a car. And then in five years time, some of them probably won't have a car anymore at all. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um of course, you you started taking councillors out for a bike ride in two thousand and eight, and it took roughly ten years for the Walthamstow scheme to happen and be bedded in. Um, Boris and Andrew Gilligan want to basically achieve the same thing for the country, more or less overnight, as far as I can tell. I mean, there are you you, you were doing one small area over quite a long period of time. They want to do a gargantuan area instantly. Do you think it'll work, or do you think actually this is where spreading it too thin risks a backlash that that potentially is damaging to the whole to the whole idea? That's that is the sixty four thousand dollar question, as they say. You know, it, it it's Gilligan's style. You know, is absolutely the the kind of the blitzkrieg, isn't it? You know, it always has been, from what I can see in in transport. You know, I I didn't really follow him that closely as a journalist prior in his previous career, um, but as a transport advisor, he's always been a fan of just getting on with it and moving fast as fast as you possibly can. Um, I think that we have seen both the pros and the cons of that in London over the last year, you know, we have seen a a delivery 
of schemes, the like of which has never been experienced before. We've probably seen decades of of um, progress in a year, you know, six months. So kudos to him and the councils for delivering that. But we also see, you know, there was a uh, uh, a survey of highways officers in London recently, and I think nigh on ninety percent of them are basically saying they're burnt out. They've faced a wall of abuse they've they've had to deliver at an incredible pace in trying circumstances you know let's remember many council officers including highways officers you know during the crisis had to deal with you know morgue duty and and horrific other things you know i know of library you know people you know library staff who were repurposed into doing you know things that that i don't think any librarian would ever expect to, to experience in their lives so Council officers have very often been on the front line of trying to cope with the crisis, while at the same time for the highways officers, they've been told deliver at speed. And they have, and they've faced a massive wall of opposition. It's not, in my view, surprising that we've seen a bunch of boroughs who've tried and failed, you know, um, Redbridge, Wandsworth, you know, Harrow, etc., um, Ealing even latterly. But in a way, what's surprising is that those boroughs even tried in the first place, you know. So I, I kind of have kudos to to Andrew for achieving that because, you, you know, we have a climate crisis that is incredibly pressing now. And yet most London boroughs prior to the COVID crisis were not, you know, they declared a climate crisis, a climate emergency, but they were acting as if it was like a climate inconvenience, you know, that like we could probably do something in five years time and we should probably think about getting some people, you know, maybe we'll put up a poster saying don't use your car quite so much. Um, and it's like, that's not an emergency. That's not a crisis. And then COVID came along. It's like, oh yeah, this, this is a, this is what a global crisis looks like. Um, and I, you know, so credit to, to Andrew for saying, no, you need to act and you need to act fast. Uh, credit to the boroughs for stepping up, but also we can see the, the yeah, the splits, the seams of all this and, and the risks. You know, I have many borough officers and many people at TfL said to me in the, in the last few months, you know, if we keep pushing at this pace, what will start happening is everything will start collapsing because, you know, they just we just can't hold the line, as it were. Um, so it's difficult. It's always difficult. How hard do you push? How fast can you move? How much resource is there? But I think at the end of the day, you know, there's also, as ever, there's this structural, silent, you know, the elephant in the room is the fact that we're still spending 27 billion at the moment on roads. So across England, we're telling councils for a few hundred thousand here or a million there or whatever to go and deliver this massive, ambitious, bold programs, reallocate road space roll out cycle tracks and LTNs like a speed we've never seen before. Um, but the resources we give to the road building and building gigantic junctions on, you know, motorways and things like that dwarfs anything that these councils have been given. So so I do think, you know, if we're serious about delivering a pace, and, and I think we have to be to some extent because of the climate crisis, because of inactivity, because of all these other issues, if we want to act like these are genuine crises, which they are, then I think we need to learn to deliver at pace. But part of that has to be about how we resource that, because at the moment, the problem, and this is, I think, where the, the issues are really coming, is we're telling people to, to deliver at pace and then we're tying one hand behind their back and, you know, kicking their feet out from under them. 
and 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 you know and meanwhile we're telling the guy next door in the SUV to deliver at pace and then we're giving him like a you know a billion pounds a minute and saying go on carry on you know you you do your thing um so i think there is there is this structure and imbalance that that needs addressing um if we want to continue that but i do th- but yeah i do think kudos generally all round to to people who've stepped up you know in the last year Let's talk a bit about public transport because you know freewheeling is is a free a, a transport and mobility blog, and a lot of my listeners work in public transport. And one of the things I'm trying to get my head around at the moment is you know, from where I sit, you know, cycling, active travel, public transport, buses—they're absolutely on the same side because they enable people to have car-free lifestyles. And then if you do that, you sometimes use the bus, you sometimes use the bike, you sometimes use the tube, you use whatever it is that works for that journey. But the critical thing is enabling people to drive less. But it doesn't feel like the worlds of public transport and the worlds of active travel have much in common or even touch each other very often. There's sort of cycling is driven by this really quite dynamic grassroots lobby of which you are part. Public transport is delivered by some quite big, relatively faceless PLCs. How do you think about public transport and active travel and where they work together and and where they don't and and what they should be doing? It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating area that that the dynamic uh, between you know buses, trains, cycling. Absolutely, I, I totally think that there is a really interesting area to discuss there. Um, I I think that the simple answer is, as you say, you know they should naturally be allies in all sorts of ways. Um, and again, it comes back to this elephant in the in the room. You know, the the the, the greatest trick the devil ever did, or whatever, is you know to to convince you that the devil doesn't exist. The issue here is not buses or cycling or trains and the fight between them that happens at times. The issue is cars and car dominance and the motoring lobby. Um, you know, all of our space on our streets in our cities and and, and outside our cities is eaten up by private motor vehicles, and all of the money. You know, the twenty seven billions for road building. You know, all these things. That money. Is, is still pouring into cars. So what we have is a situation where, and there's a great, uh, there's a great graphic, you know, isn't there, where, where, you know, there's a guy in a car takes up the whole road of this massively wide car, and then everyone else is squeezed to the side. Um, and then everyone else is like, oh, fighting for space. And that's the, that's the issue here is, you know, that while we have a situation where in our city centres, we have you know, bazillions of cars everywhere and parking everywhere, and it's easy to get about in a car, then the remaining space is being fought, like the crumbs off the table are being fought for between buses and, and cycling and, and, you know, public transport and, and cycling and walking. And and that's just the wrong way to start this entire process. So we have to start from a point of view of saying, you know what, actually, if we can get rid of a bunch of the cars, smart road user charging, workplace parking levies, cycle tracks bus lanes you know all this we suddenly start if we start restricting cars and reducing car use in our city centers particularly but across the board you know that's actually a win 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 you know it's like the taxis as well you know i'm we are effectively in a, in a turf war with taxis at the moment cycling and taxis in london do not get on at all well um, and it's a ludicrous self you know, self-defeating battle, in my view, for taxi drivers. There should be huge common ground. Um, Because ultimately, if people don't own private cars, if people don't use private cars, 
A, we get loads more road space for all the other things that we want to do. But B, most importantly, the people who were previously in cars still need to get around. And whether they get around on a bicycle or an e-scooter or in a taxi at times, if they've got heavy loads or they're disabled or whatever, or on a bus, you know, then suddenly we have a transport system that where we're not fighting each other for tiny scraps of space we actually all have the space to do the things that we need to do you know and that's the problem at the moment so so you know we can see in some schemes on, on in london on buses we're starting to see these bus gates come in and they're really important you know bishop's gate i think is a really good example of that Orford road in walton forest is, is another example of this you know you let the bus through there's not that many buses for that particular route, whatever. You put cyclists in with the buses and suddenly what you've got is you've got, a, you know, a, a, a sustainable transport corridor with no cars. And that's vital. You know, that's a really good approach. And that's a really good approach for a medieval city, you know, that really struggles on space. But for the vast majority of roads, we don't even need to talk about bus gates. We can have bus lanes and cycle tracks um, and bus priority and cycle priority if we deprioritize the private motor vehicles that's got to be the kind of the big answer to all of them and that i mean that feels absolutely right to me um but of course it's not always what happens there's one scheme you you, met, you mentioned the very road earlier where you've got a lot of personal experience which is the leebridge road and uh, when you took your wobbling councillor out to nearly die under a lorry on the leebridge road that road consisted of you know two lanes of 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 car traffic largely a bus lane along it nothing for cyclists and three bus routes and now it consists of two lanes of car traffic, much less bus lane, bike lanes all the way, and two bus routes. And bike has gone up, bus has gone down, and car has got exactly what it had at the start. And that's going to be the compromise that is reached time and time again, isn't it? Because actually, the one thing councillors aren't going to want to do is going to deprioritise cars. So they're going to move move other modes around in what's left. I see. I, I'd be interested to see your bus numbers for Leebridge Road, and I'd be interested to see bus numbers full stop, um, because I don't think that plays out quite the way you said it. And I think I think the general principle. You're quite right. There are there are you know there are very clearly times in London now, for the first time ever, where we're seeing a fight between car, bus, and cycle, and the cycle is winning on space. Um, but that's an incredibly rare, even now, situation. Um, and the bus lobby in, in London certainly remains incredibly powerful and very, very opinionated and strong rules. Um, and I think there is, you know, there is a need to have a conversation about this. And, and yeah, I don't, for most areas, for most routes, I don't see the private cars losing so heavily that the answer is no private cars, you know, or whatever. So there are absolutely these issues and these compromises going to happen. And we have to start having a coherent conversation about how we plan and network, you know, with all of this in mind um i as you can probably tell i'd quite happily see the private cars lose a hell of a lot more than they are doing at the moment in terms of space but so you know but but, but yeah the, the short answer is yep the space is tight medieval city sometimes the bus is going to lose it generally doesn't lose at the moment in london and cycling is generally the one that still loses or arguably sadly pedestrians you know we still have areas and Leebridge Road again is another example of that is that, that that we've got incredibly heavy footfall of pedestrians now on Leebridge Road and they have way too little space you know so the cycle tracks on Leebridge Road now are routinely yeah. stepped into by pedestrians quite rightly because they don't have anywhere else to go to socially distance to get around each other so you know I think I think there are still compromises that we have to have you know what would the Dutch do well they'd probably take you know Leebridge Road is a classic example of this there's about a kilometer away there's another parallel 
parallel east west road um they'd probably turn one one way and turn the other the other way and it, you, you that would be your winning moment but then you'd have a bus that only goes one way or you know you know for a kilometer now lots of lots of planners across europe would just go yep so what um, we, for good and for ill, turn around and say, you know what, we don't want that much of a gap in bus network to 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 be that strong, you know. And and maybe again, that's a transition as people start wheeling and walking and doing more. We start to say, you know what, we can plan this in a different way. But yeah, but until that point, quite rightly, the buses stay. Maybe the cars could go one way. Who knows? Um, so so I think there are there are bold options. We aren't quite there yet on. Uh, but what I would say is, is taking that specific point on Leebridge Road, what was interesting about that scheme is actually the bus lane, because the bus lane on Leebridge Road was very partial, it wasn't actually contiguous or, you know, continuous. What the modelers said, and it actually worked out, as far as I understand it, to be true, uh, which isn't always the case with modelling, um, is that the bus actually suffered worse delays for having the bus lane, which sounds a little bit kind of counterintuitive but what was happening previously was the bus would try and come out the bus lane get stuck for several minutes in a wall of traffic that didn't let it out would then go 100 meters up the road crawling in the traffic then back into the bus lane and overall that was worse for the buses than actually the process of just staying in the traffic and having the bus stops uh pulled out so that when the bus stops the traffic doesn't get passed and that was the the advantage so in actual fact, as far as I understand it, the bus delays and bus ridership figures, you know, have not been bad at all for Leibridge Road. It's still a very, very key bus corridor. And I think that's probably true. And certainly the point that you know, bus lanes are not always the answer. And, you know, Bishopsgate bus gates um, are far more likely to be the solutions in an awful lot of locations is right. And I think the, the real thing about Leibridge Road probably is simply the fact that the one thing that's been continuous is there was a wall of traffic and there's still a wall of traffic. And that if that's the, the next thing is, is actually deprioritizing cars in a big way. And it's the point you talked about earlier, it's road pricing, it's parking levies. And that's, that's, kind of, that's where bus and bike have absolute shared alignment but it feels like the only person really who can speak for both is literally Andrew Gilligan who you know as far as I can tell more or less wrote the bus strategy that came out this year as well as more or less writing the bike strategy that came out last year and then it kind of fragments into totally different worlds at almost every level and in almost every other in almost every organization um I mean from your experience as a as a cycling campaigner is there is, are there places where bus and bike come together and go and present a joint? You know, this is what we want as the non-car people. Does that does that does that happen? And if not, how could we make it happen? <laughs> so I, I live in hope. Now there are there are new younger faces coming into to the bus companies and into TfL buses, and I live in hope. One of the guys who used to work for the Cycleways team at TfL is now working on bus liaison, and we've had a couple of conversations that reach towards sensible <laughs> shall we say but yeah i absolutely think that the future has to be you know and, and in london you know if we can't do this in london where the heck are we going to do it the real shame here is that if you look at a lot of european cities the way that bus and rail and tram integrates with cycling and walking is just beautifully done and it works 
you know, and it works partly by removing the cars. That's part of the equation. Um, but it's also partly about just saying, you know what, we don't need to have a massive car park right in the front of train stations, but we do need a massive cycle park. We don't, you know, how do we integrate all these modes? Um, I do think, by the way, e-scooters and kind of those areas of things, micro micro mobility, as it's been called, um, that whole area is going to totally change this game. Because really, at that point, what you suddenly have is a situation where you can't take a bike on, on most tube lines. You can't take a bike on a bus. You know, you can if it's a folding bike or whatever, but the folding bikes are still a very, very tiny proportion of the market. Um, but an e-scooter goes anywhere. You know, you fold it up, you steer it over your shoulder and you're on the tube. So suddenly we're starting to see journeys in a lot of cities that have rolled out e-scooters that are very what's called mixed mode. You know, and at that point, I think you're really able to take out the kind of, you know, the, the rivalry between active travel and public transport and start to actually put the integration in, which I think is, is an interesting moment. Fantastic. That sounds great. So two final questions from me. One is you have been showing people around Walthamstow as an exemplar for a very long time. Um, given where Walthamstow is, where would you now go and look and say that's the exemplar for where we want to go next? Well, sadly or happily, nowhere in the UK. You know, we're still we're still looking at you know Japan, uh, Bogota, you know Paris, uh, and Holland. <laughs> you know, all of the Dutch cities. Um, you know, Barcelona. Uh, etc. So, so we're still looking abroad, I think, for most cities. And I keep saying this, you know, I'm actually really, I, I, I love the idea that Manchester could surpass London, you know, if they get it right. Uh, I, I think that kind of competition is is really healthy. In, you know, within London, we're starting to see boroughs like the city, I think, really obviously, but also Lambeth, you know, really push their networks Islington you know is another one so but they're still I think a little bit way behind uh, Walter Forest you know what's fascinating about Walter Forest is we're now at a point where the network is quite coherent um, and I know the cycle campaign in Walter Forest is, is now in a position you know a unique possibly position in the UK where they go and meet officers and say what have you done about this you know the traditional campaigner very angry voice what have you done about this what are, what's going on with that and, and the officers are like <laughs> well we've got a budget for that and that's the plan and here's the detailed design we're going to do this next year and this is what and and the campaign is like, oh okay all right bye you know so it's it's that that <laughs> role of a campaigner to be the critical friend is kind of over here, you know, to some extent. So, so which is a fascinating place to be in. So, I think, yeah, the 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 the, the role models for the rest of the country still Walford Forest for now. Hopefully, not for long. Um, the role models for Walford Forest is still abroad. And the final question from me: You said earlier that you were talking to your colleague in Enfield, and you said, you know, you'll know when you've made it or you know you've got to a certain point when you're suddenly seeing parents taking their kids to school on cargo bikes well that's where we are in walthamstow now so what 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 are the signs you're going to be looking out for in the next 10 years of the next set of changes what are, what, what are you going to be watching out for i mean i think now the cargo bike parents and you know uh we're seeing you know one of the great the great joys of my life has been i regularly ride down the leebridge road um and there are now not one but two uh muslim uh, women's groups, uh, women's cycling groups in, in Walthamstow. Um, and so quite often I will see a whole bunch of women in hijabs uh, and niqabs riding the other way down the bridge road, all grinning like crazy and hooting and chatting to each other and whatever. And, that, and you know, that's lovely. So, so 
Wolf Forest is building the diversity of cycling and not just through, you know, parents on cargo bikes and older people on e-bikes and things like that. But, but you know, the, the and so the gender diversity, but the, the ethnicity diversity as well, you know, the whole the whole spectrum of people, you know, we're starting to see more disabled cyclists, etc. So that that dream, that utopian dream of what we can achieve in terms of that, that's coming true. Um, but I think the next step is absolutely, you know, as you said about Leibridge Road, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of some of those cars now? You know, so that's the, that's the issues. Now we've taken the step and we can see the, the huge amount of people cycling and that cycling has become a slightly inspirational thing. You know, I can do that because look at all those other people doing it. Um, I think the next step is to start to say, okay, now we've done this thing. There's so many of the schemes are kind of half-baked. There's gaps. There's, you know, because that was where we could get to at that time. The next step is to go back and say, okay, we've got a network, it works. You know, this is the Seville experience in a way. You know, we've got a network, it works. People are starting to change. Right, make it better. You know, let's take out half the cars on Leibridge Road. Let's take, you know, let's make Forest Road and, and, and Leibridge Road one way in each direction. Um, let's do all this other stuff that we can go back now and do and make a, a stronger, higher quality network that gets even more people able to switch. Fantastic. Simon Monk, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Freewheeling Podcast. Well, that concludes the Freewheeling Podcast for this week. Thank you to my guest Simon Monk of the London Cycle Campaign and thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week with another guest. In the meantime, if you want to jump onto Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give us a rate and review, otherwise I'll see you again next week. Bye.